ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, this is The Money. I'm Richard Aidey. Unemployment ticked up a little last month. It's still very low, 3.7%, but that's a shade more than the 3.5% it was in March. And that increase is partly the result of higher interest rates. In fact, it's partly the point of higher interest rates because the Reserve Bank wants more people to be unemployed. Yeah. To explain, we have two economists with different worldviews. Warwick Smith's director of the Wellbeing Economy Program at the progressive think tank, the Centre for Policy Development, and Peter Tulip is the chief economist at the right-of-centre think tank, the Centre for Independent Studies. Peter, you first. Unemployment's up a bit. How high does the RBA think it will go? There are two questions, how high it will go and how high it should go, and it depends on the time period, but they're thinking about a gradual increase in the unemployment rate. Ultimately, it'll stabilise. The intention is about 4.5%, but it'll take a few years to get there. And just to be clear, that is a consequence of RBA policy, of a higher interest rate, and, and it's intentional. The bank has been vague in its explanations, but that is the way almost everyone, including myself, would interpret what they're doing, that they're trying to get the unemployment rate up to something like a 4.5% rate. If the cash rate is pushed up again next week, which some people believe will happen, this is part of why it would happen. Exactly right. Okay. Well, Warwick, if I could bring you in, why would the RBA do that? What is the rationale for it? So the rationale behind this is a term that only an economist could come up with called the NIRU, which stands for the Non-Accelerating Inflation Rate of Unemployment. And this is a theoretical framework that says that there's a certain level of unemployment below which, so if unemployment falls too low, below which labour will have too much power and that will allow them to bid up wages. Those wage increases will go beyond the capacity of the economy to absorb and will get inflation. And so if inflation runs away, we get a a wage price spiral, it's Mm -hmm. called. Wages go up. Because wages go up, people have more money to bid for a limited number of goods and services. The price of the goods and services go up because Labor's got lots of power. They bid their wages up again and so on and so on, right? So this is a wage price spiral. So this is the sort of traditional view of inflation and unemployment that's kind of been in practice for nearly 50 years now. So one of the first words you said was theoretical. You've just sort of unpacked the theory. But because it's theoretical, there's no number written in stone, and indeed there can't be. It's going to change according to where the economy is. But, That's right. But the RBA does not know what that number is, does it? No, nobody, nobody knows exactly what that number is, and, and that's why I say theoretical. And, and there are times, you know, where there's been an estimate of the, of the Nairu, unemployment's fallen below it, and we haven't seen inflation, and so everyone's gone, oh, oh well, I guess it must be lower, in which case we've kept maybe 100,000 people out of work unnecessarily. You're both economists and I'm not, I'm really not one, but I have explained this to people a few times and every time I have, people are appalled. They're outraged that this is sort of part of monetary policy. Yeah, uh, I think that's true. It's not well understood, particularly in lay circles. So first of all, I should say, I think Warwick's explanation was good and clear. I completely agree. The problem 
is that people confuse what is desirable with what's feasible. Now, we don't like increasing unemployment. The Reserve Bank doesn't want to put people out of jobs, but it does it because it doesn't think that a 3.5% unemployment rate, as we've had recently, is sustainable. At a 3.5% unemployment rate, nominal wages will start to be bid up, that will flow through into prices, will get accelerating inflation, and the whole thing will end in tears. You and work say that it's theoretical, and, and that's true, but it has a very solid empirical background underpinning it. The thinking that supports this is that high inflation is much worse than more unemployment. That's not the way I would put it. The way I would put it is that inflation can't keep accelerating more and more and more. That's just unsustainable. Eventually that becomes explosive. While, yeah, maybe 3% inflation is okay and 4% meh, maybe, the problem is the A in that Nehru term that Warwick mentioned out, the acceleration in prices, that if you were to maintain a permanently low unemployment rate Mm. below the Nehru, then you'll get accelerating inflation. It'll just keep going up and, and up and up. That's the disaster. This is this is a Jeremy Benthamite kind of thing, isn't it? It's a bit more unemployment, benefits more people because what it staves off is greater inflation. Yes, and then to get that inflation down, which ultimately society is going to demand every time it's happened, you will require even more unemployment than the right. unemployment created now. So, right. So, okay. All right. What do you make of that, Warwick? I mean, there's an awful lot to unpack in this conversation. Part of it is what is inflation and is there any fear of an actual wage price spiral right now? And I would suggest the answer is no. But perhaps the more important thing to dig down into right now is kind of what the Nairu actually is. And to the extent that it's a real thing, we know it moves around, right? The Nairu changes and policy can move it, right? So it can move based on the things that we do. And so in my view, rather than using a kind of estimate of the Nairu to dictate policy, we should be directing policy to shifting the Nairu down. Peter says unemployment this low can't be sustained without increasing inflation. Mm -hmm. But I think our own history tells us a different story. If you have higher unemployment, which obviously makes more people unemployed, which is terrible for them, but it also puts downward pressure on the wages and salaries of people who have jobs, doesn't it, Warwick? Yes, absolutely. And ultimately, this is what the Nauru framework is about. Inflation is, at its heart, a conflict for the output that society and the economy creates. And the Nauru framework explicitly takes the side of business owners, of, of capital, in that conflict, because its intention is to depress the power of workers. So it resolves that conflict by decreasing worker power. I wonder if you might go next to the idea that there has already been some wage growth and more than we've had for quite a while. But to me, it's the second half of that sentence that's the important bit because we had almost no wage growth for a decade. So surely there's a bit that has to come anyway. These patterns in wage growth are confirmation of the Nehru theory and the model. Prior to the pandemic, the Reserve Bank was keeping the unemployment rate well above the Nehru for reasons of financial stability. And as a result, 
we saw declining nominal and real wages. Recently, partly for a monetary policy mistake, we've seen the opposite, that the unemployment rate has been below the Nehru and so we get a rapid acceleration. So just the recent experience is strong confirmation of these series of the Nehru. Can I just comment briefly on what Warwick said about policy? No one thinks that the Nehru or the natural rate or the reserve army or whatever you want to call it is optimal or ideal, that it's a bad thing that people are losing jobs and can't find work. The question is, what can you do about it? There are a range of policies that might be used for lowering the Nehru in terms of labour market policy or industrial relations reform. There's a long list. The evidence on none of them is very strong, but there are reasons for thinking they might work. But that doesn't include monetary or fiscal policy. Monetary and fiscal policy have to take those other policies as given, and while they are given, it has to deal with the Nehru we currently have. And given current institutional and policy arrangements, it looks like we've got a Nehru of about 4.5%. Thinking that we could address things with fiscal policy has become not, not quite a heresy, but certainly we haven't been doing it for a while, and, we, and, and Australia's not alone in that. Uh, would you suggest that we should be taking some fiscal policy approaches to trying to keep in some inflation in check, and then we don't have to take the same approach with monetary policy that makes more people unemployed? Yeah, absolutely. Unlike Peter, I think there is a lot we can do, and I think our very our own history demonstrates it. You know, we have to look at what an increase in interest rates actually does and who it affects. The people who carry the burden of controlling inflation are almost universally those who are least equipped to carry it, right? So this is a, a super blunt instrument to begin with. So the first people who are most impacted by an increase in interest rates are very recent home buyers, right? So people who are mortgaged to the hilt mm-hmm. and who are on variable mortgage rates, which you know most people in Australia are. So they're the people hardest hit first. Their expenditure and the expenditure of other people with mortgages, as well as sort of business investment, are all reduced as a result of interest, interest rate rises. And because they spend less on goods and services, the businesses that provide those goods and services either don't expand as much as they would have or reduce their workload. And so they end up firing people, right? And the workers who get fired are the sort of least attached generally. So again, it's the people who are least able to bear that burden. I actually think what we need to do is go back and revisit the decision we made in the 1970s, which placed the importance of price stability above the importance of full employment. And for the 25 years before that, we had the opposite. We placed the importance of full employment above price stability and the economy was fine and did really well for 25 years. So I think we could return to that era. Well, as I was going to say, some economists um, reject that laser-like focus on inflation and people like Jeff Borland have argued that we ought to have an explicit goal of full employment, which I don't want to go down that rabbit hole again, but full employment does not mean that everybody in Australia has a job but that we should have that. Is that what you're arguing for here as well, Warwick? That's right. Yeah, I am. Go back to the sort of target that we had in the post-war years of full employment. And yes, you know, inflation was more volatile during that period. I had a a sort of whole range of of different methods for tackling inflation at the time. And it varied around, like it might have gone, it goes up to 7%, 8%, occasionally above 10, but not often. Over those 25 years, we averaged an unemployment rate of 2%. We had 
rapidly rising material standards of living. We had falling inequality during those 25 years. Mm. And since we've introduced, the, at the point we introduced the Nauru system, and I have to say it came along with a whole lot of other changes, right? This is the kind of economic yes. rationalist or neoliberal era. But since we've had the Nauru framework, all of those trends reversed, right? So, so the falling inequality measured by percentage of our economic output going to the sort of top 1%, top 10% of earners, that falling inequality that was happening in the post-war years reversed and has been going up ever since. Since 1981, in fact, was when we That's had right. the lowest level of inequality in Australia. Peter, I, I want to come back to you. Uh, I suspect you have something to say in response yeah. to Warwick, but just before I do, were you saying before that we can't have wage and salary growth if we don't want inflation? The Reserve Bank can choose the average rate of wage and price inflation and it sets a target of 2 to 3% price growth, inflation, and typically wage growth will be about 1% above that in long-run equilibrium. And that margin essentially equals a trend productivity growth. So that's a choice that we can have of how much nominal wages and nominal prices increase on average set by the Reserve Bank target. What the Reserve Bank can't really do is set the level of real wages, set the level of economic growth, set the wage share, set these sort of real variables. So what Warwick said, I mean, I think I agree with 90, 95% of everything that he said. I mean, so there's no argument that unemployment is a bad thing. The issue is whether there's a long-run trade-off. If we were to use monetary and fiscal policy to pursue level of unemployment below the Nehru, it would result in accelerating inflation and it would be unsustainable. And in the long run, that would cause more unemployment, more hardship than stabilising the unemployment rate at its equilibrium value. So are you saying, Warwick, that having higher inflation may not be too high a price to pay? There's no magical line at 3% inflation that makes 3% okay, 4%, 5%, 6%, 7% bad. And in fact... In a situation where you've got 8% inflation and 8% wage rises, there are a few serious losers, right? If wages and incomes keep pace with inflation, mm. that's a lot better scenario than 200,000 extra people in poverty and unemployed. Thinking that the Nairi framework is, is the best that we can do is a represents a failure of imagination and, more importantly, a failure of empathy for the plight of our fellow Australians who we force into unemployment, and I think, for the most part, unnecessarily, just because of a values decision that was made in the 1970s to shift our emphasis from full employment to price control. Warwick Smith from the Centre for Policy Development and Peter Tulip from the Centre for Independent Studies. And I should say Gareth Hutchins from ABC News has written an excellent article on all this, and we've put a link to it on the Money's homepage. The RBA decision on the cash rate can have an immediate effect on, say, the Aussie dollar. It has short-term effects on interest rates and more medium-term effects on unemployment. But I want to talk about the longer term, even the really long term, because as we're increasingly seeing with issues like global warming, long-term issues matter enormously. We just don't focus on them very well. Richard Fisher wants to change that, and he's written a book, The Long View, 
that bells the cat on why we're so consumed with the very short term. Yeah, so, so around 100 years ago, in New York, at the New York Stock Exchange, there was a practice that was introduced. Um, it was very simple. It, it was a, an ask for companies that were on the, the New York Stock Exchange to report back to the market on how they'd done every quarter and what their forecasts were going to be for the next quarter. This was quarterly reporting. And it transformed the way that companies think about their, their kind of plans and the choices they make in terms of whether they invest or whether they do things for kind of like the short-term shareholders. I spoke to a researcher on this, like Arthur Kraft, who's based at City University. He wrote, he's written about the history of it and how it, it shaped business ever since. I mean, not, not all countries have quarterly reporting, no. but because the, you know, the US is so dominant in, the, in, in Western capitalism, it's, it's influenced uh, far beyond its own borders. It has it radically shaped the way leaders within companies think about their their prospects and plans. So, if we, if they make kind of decision decisions that displease the market for the next quarter, they can be punished. This is what Arthur Kraft calls discipline. But then also they themselves, according to Kraft, make decisions that uh, harm their own kind of long term interests. Uh, Kraft calls this myopia. So, it's so leaders will do things like uh, invest less in R and D, make job cuts less less focus on training and people all all the things that would benefit the long-term view of their companies but they're stuck in the quarterly kind of mindset mm. of the next few months are, are, are the most important uh, time frame and i'm going to do everything i can to make sure that the shareholders are pleased you quote this survey of senior executives which found that the majority of them the overwhelming majority of them would act against the company's long-term interest if it gave them a kind of quarterly boost partly because their remuneration is often tied to this. Yeah, that's true. I think I think that that's one of the things that I found when researching the book that it's not necessarily that that the individuals are bad actors working against the, their own company's interests. It's it's more that the entire systemic kind of incentive structure that's established it often just plays to basic human behavior. You know, if if you incentivize people to, to only kind of focus on the next few months and to, and and you pay them handsomely to do that, then quite obviously mm -hmm. individuals are going to kind of like follow those, those those interests. And so this kind of like focus on targets that are short term rather than long term, this is one of the key kind of things that underpins short term thinking. Yeah. So we need to think about those. But you also found examples of companies that are very old, I mean, centuries old. What is it about these that's led to that longevity? One country I looked at in particular was Japan. It has more very old companies than almost any other country in the world. So there are, Europe, I mean, there are European companies, for example, Grolsch or Italy's Beretta that have been around for, for centuries. So it's not the case that, that there aren't long-term companies elsewhere. It's just Japan has a lot of them. So it begs the question, why is that? There are various different factors, some of which are culturally specific to, to Japan, but generally speaking, one of the things that makes companies last within Japan is, is, is a focus on serving the community as well as the, the kind of the shareholders. So many of, of these, these organizations are kind of provide a kind of benevolent service to the people that they serve, but also kind of like to the people who work within the organizations themselves. So the organizations are communities. There's also kind of like the factor of many of these, these old long lasting companies serve basic human needs as well. So you know, there's one one particular company which you may have heard of that started like a very long time ago, focusing on playing cards as, as yes. games. Uh, yeah, it's now called Nintendo. You know, it, it produces Zelda 
which I've been playing with my, with my daughter over the past weekend, you know, the focus is, has been on play. That's, that's always going to be a human need. Even if we fast forward 200 years into the future, like our future generations will still be playing. And so thinking about like, what are the things that last in that sense, I think is another reason why long-term companies have existed for so, for so long in, in Japan. Yeah, well, you highlight that there's a thousand companies more than 300 years old and they were surveyed. Many provide services that never go out of start play, but also I think 230 in alcohol, 155 in food, 117 in hotels, all of which we've all, we've always needed and we're always going to need. Yep, food and alcohol. Yeah, it's, it's a, good, a good bet to, to to invest in, I suppose. You also talk about deep time organisations, Richard. What are these, and what do they have in common? This was a, a study that was published a few years ago that just looked at some of the factors that, again, make organisations last longer. You know, these are organisations like the Marylebone Cricket Club, uh, Sverica Riksbank in Sweden, which is a you know, financial institution, University of Al Karin which is in Morocco, which is an Islamic university. Many of these organizations have lasted because they're attached to kind of long-term power, like to the crown in the UK, for example, mm. or a religion like Islam. They, they also, like, like the Japanese companies, have a uh, they provide a service, they provide a community. The term that the researchers used was that they're benevolent monopolists. They're the only ones that do do the thing, yeah. But they benefit the community around them, you know. As it, like so, the University of Al Karim trains people. It's, it's you know it's one of the oldest universities in the world, but you know it also encourages a focus on donating money to the community uh, to, to kind of like ensuring that the the, the the environment around it prospers as well as it itself, which is something that the often corporations don't do. Another way of looking at it is, is that like it, it more than just benefits the community. It means that the corporation will last longer if it invests beyond its own shareholder needs. Yeah. Then we get to political systems, which are overwhelmingly biased towards short-termism. What can we do about that? It's a deep challenge for politics. I mean, there's a great quote, um, Jean-Claude Juncker, who was kind of a former leader in the, the European Union, you know, after the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, and he said, we all know what to do, but we don't know how to get re-elected once we've done it. That's the central dilemma for the politician, like how to kind of do things for the long term, but also carry on in their own personal careers. If we move beyond the political sphere, something else you highlight is that we can embrace a long term view and indeed maintain long term actions in things like our traditions and in practicing faiths. I was looking for examples of things that have lasted for a very long time and that could last into the future. Zoroastrianism does, you know, so it's a faith um, based in Iran and in India, is, is is keep a flame going. So the religion has the, these kind of everlasting flames, which have been kept burning for well over 1000 years in some cases. Keeping it going speaks to kind of like the, the challenges that you have when you have to do things over a, a very long time. How do you make things last, you know, when they're ephemeral, like a fire? And one of the aspects that you can see within within the religion is, is that the, there are elements of ritual and community. So when you have a ritual and when people come together to kind of focus on an act, that often can be longer lasting than, say, for example, building something like a statue and then hoping it'll last and it will, it will be kept safe. There are incentive structures that make it beneficial for, to, to kind of be part of that, the religious view, but there's, there's also status. And so... This an architecture around the flame that keeps it going, and I thought that was really interesting yeah. because 
things like rituals you associate them with religions but there are many other rituals that you know going to a football game doing rituals with your family like eating breakfast in a certain way there's, there's, there's all sorts of kind of like things that we do as communities the question i wanted to ask in the book is, is like what what rituals foster long-term behaviors you also talk about some of the approaches to time that have come from different indigenous peoples especially native americans in north america yeah so this this is this is one of the the better known principles in in my field of long-term thinking the seventh generation principle there are different interpretations but you know one of them is is that leaders should focus on decisions that benefit seven generations hence so you know, seven generations 150 years into the future others interpret it as being more symmetrical as in there are seven generations three beforehand you know mm. your great great grandparent and three after you know you should do things that are right by your ancestors and also your descendants the meaning is the same basically we should think beyond just the present generation and think about what our ancestors have done for us but also kind of like what we should leave behind for them it's not just native american culture like you see it elsewhere i think this kind of like duty to posterity is something that is essential to human nature and how we relate to one another but sometimes it's forgotten well, when it's remembered, it's often remembered because it's a story and we're a storytelling animal, uh, I think Stephen Pinker called us. And, and there's a power in them. And you actually make a point of, of telling one that has a power, but almost certainly is not true. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, in the UK, told it a few years ago in a speech. So the story goes that there's a college in Oxford called New College, and it dates back to the 13th century. And it had beams uh, in the, the main hall that were rotting supposedly about 200 years ago and so they needed to be replaced and so the the kind of leaders of the college go to the forester and say like have we got any oaks and the forester supposedly said oh yeah the oaks are ready now the oaks that had been planted in the 13th century were now ready to be chopped down to replace the beams and supposedly the leaders had a, you know, the foresight to do that um, it's not quite true. As in, I spoke, I spoke to the archivist at the college, Jennifer Thorpe, and she's a bit exasperated by it because it's you know it keeps getting repeated as a story because of its power. You know what it shows mm. for long-term thinking. That said, there are examples elsewhere where trees have been planted uh, with the idea that they will be kind of like chopped down later on. You know, it's, it's not it's not that there aren't stories out there in the world. You know, so mm. there are shrines in Japan, for example right now trees are being planted that, that won't be chopped down for 50 60 years so it's a powerful story apart from stories there's also art and, and especially art that people can take part in and i think this links back to this participating in a public thing in having a ritual and there's this extraordinary thing i didn't know anything about called the letters of utrecht which is a, a city in the netherlands yeah so th this is one of many kind of long-term art projects that exist around the world it's very simple and it's rooted in community but it, it kind of will last for a very long time i hope basically every, every saturday there's a stonemason who kind of goes into the streets of utrecht and carves a letter in in a block of stone and then places it into the the street and it, and it spells out a poem the poem is well over 100 meters long now it's been going for for many years and it's a kind of a, a long-term participatory public artwork where people every day can kind of see something slowly being built that they can do things like they can write their name or carve their name onto the side of it each block but it's a way of in the everyday life attaching yourself to something mm. that lasts beyond your kind of like short-term perspective these kind of long-term art projects 
they help to connect us to uh, longer term time, but through the lens of culture, art, and th things that kind of like are, are not cold and mathematical, they're, they're mm. more kind of emotional. And that, that's what I love about them. That's where I want to finish because you that's where you finish the book about, I suppose, that, that the advantages, the, the upsides of taking a long term view. And one of the things you, you highlight is that it is restorative just to think that way. The start of the book for me began with the personal experience. I began to think about my daughter's trajectory to the next century. She was born in 2013. She stands a pretty good chance of seeing the end of this century, which blew my mind when I thought about it. Mm. Then I started to think about, you know, the, the year 2100 uh, is, is often associated with things like sea level rise, robots taking a lot of jobs. It's, it's rarely good news stories. And so that, that in a way was a motivator to me to take that, that longer view. I started from a point of pessimism, but speaking to people who, who take the long view, long-term organizations, individuals, uh, companies, they show that taking the long view is more than just an exercise in sacrifice. It's not just about giving something to future generations and taking away from the current one. It can be restorative. You know, if you take a, a long view, it's, it's a lot easier to navigate the tumultuous times that we live in. You know, you can see what truly matters. It gives a source of energy perspective and, and ultimately hope that, that there is a kind of plural futures that lie ahead. The past is singular, it's fixed. The present is the same, but the, there are many different futures that lie ahead of us, many different paths and trajectories. And the longer you go into the future, the more you see that those bifurcate into different kind of paths. And, and that for me is, is a source of hope that the future is not yet fixed. And that, that was ultimately the conclusion of the book. I think it's a very hopeful book and I really, really got something out of reading it. Thank you for joining us today, Richard. Thank you. Richard Fisher is the author of The Long View, Why We Need to Transform How the World Sees Time. It is hopeful and it's fascinating. Actually, speaking of hope, it's great to have hope, but it's sensible to have insurance too. Next time on The Money, a couple of different insurance stories that you should hear. The Money comes to you from Gadigal Land. It's produced by Ian Coombe. I'm Richard Aidey. See you next time. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.